I want to tell you a story about a city where public transit is a battleground in the fight for equal rights. This was a time when Black men had come back from war in uniform, bearing battle scars, but were refused the dignity of riding public transit. When Black women coming home from work would be refused a seat. When just being Black in the city was an invitation to violence. It was a time when a new generation of Black men and women decided they'd had enough, that they wanted change now. That's why a Black woman, dressed in her best, set out one day to ride public transit, to pay her fare and ride unmolested, just like white people. And just by trying to do that one small thing, she planned to take the entire Black community one step closer to equality. But this story isn't about Rosa Parks on that bus in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955. Our story takes place right here, up north in Philadelphia, almost 100 years earlier. And this woman's name was Carolyn LeCount. And just like Rosa Parks, she may have looked all prim and proper on the outside, a tired working woman just trying to get home. But in reality, both of these women were well-educated, strategic, hardcore activists, ready for a fight. Welcome to Found in Philadelphia, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Philadelphia's past so that we can better understand the present. Because our history matters. I'm your host, Lori Ament. With each episode, I hope that you'll learn something new, see things a little differently, and be inspired to go discover some of this history for yourself, right here in the city of brotherly love. The following is the first episode in a special three-part series recorded during the COVID-19 shutdown. The first two parts tell an action-packed story of our city during and after a crisis, while the third will slow things down a bit to understand the life and work of the hero of our story, Caroline LeCount. I hope you listen to them all. Our story starts in Philadelphia in 1846. The city's official boundaries are still just two square miles, defined as the area between the Delaware and Schuylkill Rivers from South Divine Streets. This is the area of today's center city. The population of the city and its surrounding districts has been exploding over the past few decades, and the total population has increased to about five times what it was in 1800. Many of the newcomers are poor Catholic immigrants from Germany, and more recently, large numbers from Ireland. The city has been rocked by waves of violence between Catholics and Protestants, and also riots between Irish immigrants and the large free Black community of Philadelphia, whose numbers have also been growing. Slavery is still the law of the land. There have been a few unsuccessful slave revolts by Denmark Vesey in South Carolina in 1822, and then Nat Turner in Virginia in 1831. And these have made slaveholders very, very afraid. Fears of enslaved people who could read, write, and organize ignited a crackdown across the South, with states enacting stricter laws about educating enslaved people and forbidding them to gather in groups unsupervised. And even here, up north in Philadelphia, the last decade has seen the erosion of rights and a growing animosity against the free Black community. One humiliating blow came in 1838, when the Pennsylvania legislature expanded the right to vote for all white men, regardless of their wealth or class. 
while taking away their voting rights of Philadelphia's small number of wealthy Black men. Perhaps more ominous were the events of one evening in May of 1838, when mobs burned down the anti-slavery society's newly constructed Pennsylvania Hall, and then moved on to attack the Friends Home for Colored Orphans. And even though they had advance notice that such an attack was imminent, the city did nothing to stop it or to bring the rioters to justice. Into this expanding, explosive metropolis, Carolyn Rebecca LeCount was born in 1846. The second of three surviving children born to the free Black artisan family of James and Sarah LeCount. The LeCounts lived at 904 Rodman Street in Philadelphia's historic 7th Ward. The 7th Ward was then the area between 7th and 25th Streets, from South to Spruce Streets. It was fast developing a concentration of Black-owned businesses, schools, clubs, banks, hospitals, and newspapers that has been compared to the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s. James LeCount worked as a skilled cabinet maker, coffin maker, and undertaker for the Black community. The LeCount family worshipped at the African Episcopal Church of St. Thomas, which was then located just south of Independence Hall at 5th and St. James Court, just behind the Athenaeum. The LeCount family were part of what has been called the aspiring class. Here is Chris Hayashida Knight, adjunct professor of history at California State University, Chico, to help us understand what the aspiring class looked like. The specifics of the work they do each day would locate them in the working class um, because they are seamstresses and domestic workers. And yet, at the end of the day, they get dressed up and put on a hat and go out into you know, the church bazaar and do the kind of benevolent work that wealthier white women around them are doing. So though they were working class, according to wealthy whites, the LeCount family ranked among the wealthier members of the Black community. And they felt a profound sense of obligation to improve not only their lives, but the lives of the broader Black community through what some might call benevolent work and others might call activism. James LeCount was a well-known member of the Seventh Ward community and was closely tied to prominent activists like Jacob C. White. White was, among other things, the proprietor of Lebanon Cemetery and an officer in the Philadelphia Vigilance Committee, which helped enslaved people escape to freedom through the network that came to be called the Underground Railroad. There are anecdotes about LeCount's coffins being used to smuggle escaped slaves out of Philadelphia. This terrifying means of escape might have become more likely after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. This act made the federal government responsible for the return of enslaved people, even if they had reached free states in the North. This led to more daring and secretive escape plans in order to evade these state-sponsored kidnappings. Even free Blacks were being captured, spreading fear of federal slave catchers throughout the entire Black population of Pennsylvania. Despite these uncertain times, James and Sarah LeCount invested in the future of the next generation and sent their children to the best schools available. It's likely that the young LeCount children attended one of the well-respected Black private schools, which were located within people's homes and were taught primarily by Black women teachers. These are, in, in some ways, a sort of organized homeschool where there's a dozen students or 25 students and they're in the same classroom with the same teacher all day long. This is historian Hayashida Knight again. We have that the notion of the little schoolhouse on the prairie kind of uh, in our American tradition. And, and that's very much what it's like. It's just, 
kids in the big city. The LeCount children would need a solid grade school education to prepare them for entry into Philadelphia's recently established Institute for Colored Youth. The Institute for Colored Youth was funded by a bequest from the Quaker silversmith Richard Humphreys upon his death in 1831. He intended the money to be used for the education of Philadelphia's African-American community. After a few fitful starts, including an unsuccessful boarding and agricultural training school, the Institute for Colored Youth was organized as a preparatory school and a boys and girls high school with full-time classes beginning in 1852. The Institute then operated out of two nondescript row houses at 716-718 Lombard Street. The Institute would ultimately transform into the first historically Black college. Today, we know it as Cheney University. The ultimate success of the Institute in these early years can be attributed to the first principal, Charles Reason, a Haitian immigrant from New York who became a well-known abolitionist and educator. Reason came to the Institute from his position as a college professor, where he was the first African-American to teach at a predominantly white college. And Reason established the Institute's long tradition of hiring the best and brightest Black educators to teach Black youth, including Philadelphia's own Sarah Maps Douglas, abolitionist, activist, writer, artist, and educator. She would have guided the young Carolyn LeCount for the Institute's rigorous preparatory curriculum. The LeCount children would have been eligible to enter the Institute's preparatory school at the age of 10, provided that they could read, write, and spell proficiently understand simple arithmetic, and demonstrate some knowledge of geography. Once they entered as students of the Institute, the LeCount children had one year to successfully complete the preparatory course. Failure meant leaving the Institute and losing a free education. All of the LeCount children succeeded to the high school department at the Institute, where they would have studied English, philosophy, history, Greek and Latin, algebra, geometry, trigonometry, and chemistry, in order to successfully graduate, students had to go through a demanding test, all done through verbal questions and answers in front of the entire board of managers, plus it was open to the public. The Institute became a source of pride for the Black community of Philadelphia. They followed the test scores of Institute students, which were printed in local newspapers, and attended the public exams. Here's Hayashita Knight to help us understand how closely the community followed the students' progress at the Institute. You hear these stories of, in the paper of how these 15-year-olds perform on their end-of-term exams. And it really reads like box scores of baseball games, the way that the community is paying attention to who the upcoming stars are at the Institute for Colored Youth. The Institute also became an important community resource, offering adult classes and educational lectures in the evenings and providing a public lending library of several thousand books. I think it's important to pause and reflect on what it means to educate Black people in the North during these years leading up to the Civil War, when the simple act of sending your children to school is seen as subversive in most parts of the country. At this time, slavery is not only being practiced in the South, it's expanding into newly acquired territory as the United States is aggressively growing west beyond the Mississippi. And slavery is even reaching into what had been safe areas of the North, where Black people are being kidnapped under the legal pretense the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. The system of slavery and oppression is growing stronger everywhere. At the same time, slaveholders are enacting harsh penalties on any form of education for those in bondage. So the act of Black educators teaching Black people in Philadelphia was a very powerful thing in many ways. 
I want to introduce you to Dia Jones, an educator and blogger in Philadelphia, who we'll hear a lot more from in the third part of the series. But she told me how inspired she was by visiting old Black schoolhouses and thinking about the importance of education. When I travel to certain places, I want to see where the old Black schoolhouse was. And it's just amazing when you look at it, and some of these are so small. Like, how in the world did you teach? But it was a must. We had yeah. to, the determination to get it done um, is what made people were like, I'm going to go to this schoolhouse and it's in, in the summertime, it's 100 degrees in there. In the wintertime, it's like one little heat source and we're freezing, but we'll figure it out and we'll manage. It's now 1860 in Philadelphia and Carolyn LeCount and her siblings are hard at work on their studies at the Institute for Colored Youth. The city of Philadelphia is growing with a brash confidence. It seems like there's no way but forward to a bigger and better Philadelphia of tomorrow. The city has recently expanded to incorporate its adjacent boroughs, and its boundaries now extend to those we know today. There's a great deal of construction with the city's relentless grid of row house lined streets pushing beyond its old boundaries, north, south, and west. And nothing symbolizes the exhilarating speed and progress of the city like the latest, greatest innovation, this much-needed improvement in public transit, the horse-drawn streetcar. It's hard for us today to imagine a horse-drawn streetcar as a major piece of cutting-edge technology. But in 1860, it's poised to play a huge role in the expansion and modernization of American cities. Philadelphia's first form of public transit along its roadways was the omnibus, which appeared on Philly streets in the 1830s. Omnibuses were large, heavy carriages with 12 to 24 seats. Some allowed riders on the roof, and they were pulled by teams of two or four horses. By the late 1850s, privately run omnibus companies were providing over 300 omnibuses on dozens of regular routes. Fares were fairly expensive, about 10 to 12 cents per ride, which is about $4 in today's money. This made the omnibus primarily a middle-class way of commuting. They were accessible only to those who could afford to live at a distance from where they worked. But what was it like to ride in an omnibus for those who could afford it? While omnibuses moved at speeds of two to five miles per hour over our narrow cobblestone streets and offered what was described by one Philadelphia rider as a heavy, jolting, slow, and uncomfortable ride. If you've ever ridden a bike around Old City, you'll have some appreciation for what this must have been like. Now, imagine the innovation of the horse-drawn streetcar, the great-grandfather of our electric trolleys. Streetcars could pull more people more efficiently over greater distances and could therefore charge reduced fares. Here's how they did it. First of all, unlike the omnibuses, streetcars rode on rails. Philadelphia's chief engineer established a standard design for the construction of the rails that the streetcars would ride on. The rails were designed to be as low as possible and set within granite pavers that allowed other carriage traffic to cross over the streetcar rails relatively easily, like a speed bump today. The streetcars rode on iron wheels with a projecting rim or flange to keep it on the rails, like small train wheels. The streetcar carriages themselves were carefully streamlined to be lightweight, using lighter wood and sometimes canvas, and using slimmer axles to reduce the amount of metal. The lightweight cars running on standardized iron rails allowed for streetcars to carry a full load of 30 or more passengers with only two horses, and sometimes only with one. Suddenly, you could pull more people with much less horsepower. And remember, back then, horsepower meant real horses that needed to be fed, cared for, stabled, and cleaned up after. So the need for fewer horses greatly reduced the cost to ride. 
Streetcar fares averaged about five cents a ride, or $1.50 today. Those horse-drawn streetcars first appeared on Philadelphia streets in 1858, running north to south along 5th and 6th streets. But the streetcar system rapidly expanded, with 19 private lines operating within the first three years. And they soon put the old bumpy omnibuses out of business. What was it like to ride the streetcar? Well, it's not all that different from riding a SEPTA trolley or bus today. You would hail the streetcar at the street corner along its route. The driver would be standing up front on an open platform, his hands on the reins, with a small projecting roof as the only protection from the weather. When the streetcar comes to a full stop, you and your fellow passengers would enter at the rear of the car by a small set of steps. Once inside the low-ceilinged car, you'd sit on bench-like seats, sometimes softened with cushions. As the car started off, the conductor inside the car would collect your fare. When you wanted to get off, you'd pull a cord to let the driver know your stop. This all sounds kind of familiar, but we have to remember what a difference the streetcar ride was from the slow, jolting omnibus. The streetcar ran smoothly along the rails at about seven or eight miles an hour. It offered speed and relative comfort. All of these rails being built in the city streets are a sign of bigger changes as Philadelphia modernizes. Streets are no longer public places where people sell their goods, where they walk and socialize with their neighbors, and where kids play. No, those are the old, slow, cluttered streets of the past. The city streets of the future are dedicated to the efficient transportation of people and goods. Streets are now optimized for the speedy streetcar, which makes the exceptional trip become ordinary. And the ordinary trip is longer than ever. The mayor claims it's the greatest public benefit the city has ever seen. What's not to like? Well, if you can't afford the fare, you can't ride. So Philadelphia streetcars were too expensive for most of the working class to ride on a regular basis. And if you're black in Philadelphia, the driver might let you ride up front on the open air platform, where you're not only exposed to the weather, but also to the dirt kicked up by the horse's hooves. But more than likely, you're not allowed to ride at all. Just like the omnibuses before them, Philadelphia's streetcars are not just segregated, they exclude black people altogether. And men and women face both threats of violence and actual violence if they dare to board Philadelphia streetcars. So by keeping black people off the streetcar, the city is making it quite clear who does and who does not have access to the opportunities that are available in this new era of progress. The promise of the future is literally passing them by. But maybe it shouldn't be all that surprising that African-Americans are denied the right to ride public transportation in Philadelphia. The United States Supreme Court has recently come out with one of its most notorious decisions in the Dred Scott case, which effectively denies that Black people are citizens of the United States and have any rights at all. We've covered a lot of ground, and there's still a long way to go. So here's where we are. Philadelphia in the middle of the 19th century has grown exponentially in both population and physical size. Philadelphia is transforming into a modern city with new citywide services, including the recent public transit innovation of the horse-drawn streetcar. This is allowing citizens to move efficiently over longer distances. But progress is not being felt by everyone equally. Racism in the North is keeping the Black community from fully participating in the modernizing city, even excluding them from the streetcars and every other basic civil right. However, Philadelphia's Black community, 
especially those leaders in the city's seventh ward, are refusing to be defined by these limitations. They are actively organized and encouraging the education of the next generation. But it's 1860. Abraham Lincoln is about to be elected president. The country's on the brink of a civil war that's going to shake things up. And Philadelphia is right in the thick of it. Before we dive into what the Civil War looked like in Philadelphia, let's stop to celebrate with the Institute for Colored Youth. It's early May 1863, and Carolyn LeCount and four of her fellow students have kept up their studies through the war and are ready to graduate. It's time for those public examinations, and the upper floors of the Sansom Street Hall are packed standing room only. Sansom Street Hall was located on the 600 block of Sansom Street, just half a block west of Independence Square. So most of the attendees could walk to the celebration without subjecting themselves to the violence and racism of Philadelphia streetcars. It's here at the Institute's graduation where Carolyn LeCount steps out into the spotlight, where she happily shines. The program begins with high school students demonstrating their knowledge in a wide range of subjects, from English composition to algebra, from Latin to anatomy. Carolyn LeCount gives a sparkling presentation on the cultivation of taste. Then the younger girls in the preparatory school recite a poem selected by Sarah Douglas to much admiration and approval by the audience. Finally, the graduates are presented with their diplomas according to their standing and final examinations. At the top of the class, in both classics and mathematics, even beating out our older brother, James Jr., is 17-year-old Carolyn LeCount. It's worth taking a look at this graduating class of 1863. Caroline comes in first, her older brother, James Jr., in second. We can easily imagine their parents bursting with pride that night. The other graduates include Joseph Rogers, a child of parents who had likely escaped from slavery in Virginia. He would live a long life working as a clerk in Philadelphia. Also graduating is Ellis Dingle, who would take up a teaching position in Darby and would show early promise as a preacher, but would die young. Finally, the other woman to graduate in 1863 was Rebecca Cole, who went on to get her medical degree from the Female Medical College of Pennsylvania. Cole is one of the first African-American women to do so, and she eventually becomes the distinguished Dr. Rebecca Cole. More about her later. But the star of that evening in May 1863, without doubt, is Carolyn LeCount. She even inspires one R.B. Jones to write and publish a poem in her honor. You can read it on the podcast website. It's pretty awful. But this moment of triumph is soon overshadowed by other events. Because remember, there's a war on. At this point in 1863, Philadelphia has become a key hub for the Union's war effort. While the war started with an optimism that it would be over quickly, by 1863, the city is getting ready for the long haul. We don't typically think of Philadelphia as being an important part of the Civil War, but it was critical to the Union war machine. First, the city was home to the U.S. Naval Yard, then located at Washington Avenue and the Delaware River. The Schuylkill Arsenal, located all the way at the other end of Washington at Grace Ferry, supplied the majority of the Union soldiers' uniforms. And the Frankfurt Arsenal, up north at Taconian Bridge Streets, was the center of the Union's small arms development, manufacture, and repair. Almost every Union soldier likely wore a uniform or carried a gun made in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was also a center for the movement of troops from New England, New York, and New Jersey 
back and forth to the battlegrounds of the South. Thousands of Union troops passed through the city, traveling by ferry across the Delaware, and then marching onto the trains that carried them south. Philadelphians organized a huge facility called the Volunteer Refreshment Saloon near the Delaware River ferries that served the needs of enlisted men. And when the wounded were brought back from the battlefields, Philadelphia provided a huge number of hospital beds. Among the earliest was the privately organized Citizen Volunteer Hospital near the railroad depot at Broad and Washington. That railroad depot still stands and is now Sprouts Market. But as the war grinds on, Philadelphia develops 24 military hospitals, plus an additional 22 smaller civilian hospitals. By 1863, Philadelphia has built the two largest Union hospitals anywhere in the North. The Satterley Hospital, which is located just north of what is now Clark Park in West Philadelphia, and the Mauer Hospital in Chestnut Hill. Together, these hospitals provide over 7,000 beds, just in time for some of the biggest battles of the war. So at this point, Philadelphia has become a vast network of interconnected wartime facilities set within the broader nationwide Union war machine. And the best way to navigate Philadelphia's far-flung system of camps, factories, railroad depots, and hospitals was by the increasingly popular horse-drawn streetcar. But remember that both the streetcar and the Civil War had been moving forward without the Black community in the North. Just as they couldn't ride the streetcars, Black men were excluded from fighting in the war. But 1863, the year that Carolyn LeCount graduated from the Institute for Colored Youth, this proved to be a pivotal moment for Northern Blacks and their role in the Civil War. On January 1st, 1863, Lincoln announces the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln's proclamation is welcomed by abolitionists as a preliminary step to ending slavery, but it's fundamentally flawed. Here's why. It began as a bargaining chip. Lincoln offered to end the war if the Confederacy would return to the Union and pledge to end slavery by January 1st, 1900. If not, Lincoln threatened them with the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing all of the slaves in the Confederacy's territory. So when the South ignored this threat and the proclamation was ultimately issued, its shortcomings revealed it as a political maneuver. It freed enslaved people in their rebellious slave states only, where the Union had little control leaving an estimated 500,000 people in slavery in the bordering Union states of Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri. Their emancipation would have to wait until the end of the war. We know that Philadelphia's Black community did celebrate the announcement of the Emancipation Proclamation. It was described as a jubilee day, with all of the churches open and celebrations going on into the evening. We have a firsthand account of this from the remarkable diaries of Emily Davis, a young Black dressmaker who recorded her daily life in Philadelphia during the Civil War. While Emily Davis did not shine at the highest levels of the Black elite like Carolyn LeCount, Davis did have connections to that community, and she and LeCount must have shared many similar experiences. Here is Judith Giesberg to tell us what life was like for these women, as revealed in Davis's diaries. Giesberg is a Civil War and women's history historian at Villanova University and author of Army at Home, about women in Pennsylvania during the Civil War. Her life was a mixture of unsurprising things for young unmarried people. So lots of socializing, not all of it is politics and work. So 
festivals and church-related activities, dating and intrigue between friends, that kind of stuff, gossip, that gives you sort of a view inside this community, which looks very familiar. And then, you know, she deals with racism when she talks about that. That's her Philadelphia. So it's a Philadelphia that from the outside seems to have some opportunity for uh, free people of color. On the other hand, it's very obvious that she's sort of a half citizen of the country as long as slavery exists. Following soon after the Emancipation Proclamation, African-American men began volunteering to fight for the Union. In February and March of 1863, the first Black regiments were organized, the 54th and 55th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry Regiments, which included an estimated 1,500 Black men from Philadelphia. You might know them from the movie Glory. However, many were reluctant to fight for a government that denied them their basic civil rights. In fact, denied that they had any rights at all. Historian Giesberg explains their concerns. Not everybody in Pennsylvania, especially among the Philadelphia uh, Black elite, was willing to rush into the army. And some people thought that certainly our enlistment is going to lead to citizenship. Other people said, no, we need to know that that's going to happen first. Otherwise, we're fighting for a nation that hasn't really committed to this. And all of those conversations were happening in Philadelphia newspapers, and people were talking about those things in Philly. The initial skepticism about joining up to fight within the Black community was slowly overcome by men like Frederick Douglass, who gave a speech in March 1863 at Mother Bethel AME Church entitled Men of Color to Arms. We know Emily Davis attended this talk, and it's likely that Carolyn LeCount would have been there too. But the real turning point for the Black community in Philadelphia happened in June of 1863, when news came of the stunning Union loss at Chancellorsville. And then even more terrifying, General Lee and his Confederate army crossed the Potomac in his second and final push to take the battle to Union territory. This prompted Philadelphia's prominent black men to put up posters with an appeal echoing Frederick Douglass, men of color to arms, now or never. Pennsylvania would raise the largest number of black recruits for the Union among any non-slave state the appeal was signed by well-known men like Ebenezer Bassett, who was principal of the Institute for Colored Youth then, Frederick Douglass, the leaders of the city's black churches, and younger activists, including Elijah Davis, Emily Davis's brother, and one Octavius Valentine Caddo, a teacher, an activist, and an admirer of the young Carolyn LeCount. Throughout June, the news of Lee's advancing Confederate army brings panic to Philadelphia. If the white community is terrified to find the war approaching, can you imagine the fear among the Black residents? An army of men who are fighting to preserve slavery, who had up until recently been allowed to come north and kidnap them on the streets. These men are now approaching en masse, prepared for battle. These men used to come north with warrants and handcuffs. Now they're here armed with guns and cannon. Judith Giesberg explains what happens when, despite Lee's order against it, the Confederate army begins what they call a slave hunt as they enter Pennsylvania. They start to kidnap people and, and take them back into the South, massive numbers of them. And people know this in Philadelphia because, you know, people of color who are out in South Central Pennsylvania hear this news and they get on trains or they get on the roads and they head to Philadelphia. So all of a sudden, Philadelphia's population is swollen with refugees that are fleeing the Confederate army that's in Pennsylvania now to take slaves and to fight. People were worried that Philadelphia was next too. So, so yeah. it really brought it all 
uh, into sharp relief. You know, what was at stake in this war? In a rare moment of solidarity on June 17th, the city of Philadelphia outfits and arms a group of 90 Black volunteers. They head to Harrisburg by train to offer their services to Pennsylvania's governor. Emily Davis is there to see them off. And since Octavius Caddo is among the volunteers, Carolyn LeCount must be among the crowd too. These young women may have both admired the men's warlike appearance, but felt, like Davis wrote in her diary, quite sick last night. Fortunately or unfortunately, the governor rejects the services of the Black volunteers, and the men are sent back to Philadelphia. By late June, however, the Union begins to actively recruit Black soldiers for the U.S. Army as segregated U.S. colored troops who will serve under white officers. While the state had rejected them, the national government is now in great need of these new recruits and will soon begin compulsory service for all men between the ages of 20 and 45. On June 31st, the Black community is out on the streets again to watch the latest group of Black soldiers march north up 6th Street to Camp William Penn located just outside the city limits in Cheltenham Township. And in case anyone wonders what these men are fighting for, you can just take a look at their regimental flags, like the 24th Regiment flag, which reads, let soldiers in war be citizens in peace. These men are fighting on credit that the U.S. government will recognize their rights when all this is over. And just as the men, or the boys as Emily Davis calls them, march out of the city, Philadelphia is being flooded with refugees fleeing the advancing Confederate army. The Battle of Gettysburg, the bloodiest battle of this brutal war, is about to start. Thank you for listening to this first in a special three-part episode of the Found in Philadelphia podcast. The Life and Times of Carolyn LeCount is such an action-packed story. Maybe you need some time to take a break and digest everything so far. But if you're ready to keep going, you can dive into the next episode right away. This podcast was made possible in part through a grant from the Athenaeum of Philadelphia. I'd like to thank Dr. Judith Giesberg, professor of history at Villanova University, for her ongoing work making so much of her research available online, and also for her time and interest in being part of this project. I'd also like to thank historian Chris Hayashida Knight, California State University Chico, who has been very generous with his time and research. Also, huge thanks to Dia Jones, a current Philadelphia educator activist and creator of the Educate Her blog. You're going to hear a lot more from her in future episodes. I also want to recognize the working from home support of Surreal Tayandie, an associate teaching professor and audio engineer at Drexel University and head of Mad Dragon Recording Studios. I'll also need to thank Bill Dossett for helping me understand some legal terminology. I couldn't do this without all of you. Okay, let's find out what happens next.